7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 female donkeys. Hundreds of servants working for Him day and night. Ten beautiful children, seven sons, three daughters. A strong reputation. We're talking about a guy who is called the greatest of all people of the East. This is Job. A God, a righteous man, whom God Himself trusts. And He often offers sacrifices to His children's sins, even without knowing if they have sinned. Such a piety. Such a spirituality. Everything in Job's life goes very well. But his story suddenly undergoes a drastic change. Overnight, Job lost all his servants. Pirates stole his animals. A mighty thunder fell from the sky and killed his sheep. And all his children were exterminated by a hurricane. If I'm grieving because I lost one little boy, Job lost ten in one single day. With tears in his eyes, Job fell on the ground and worshipped the Lord. Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Next, it's not over. Next, Satan attacks his health. Job now is covered from sores. From the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. His wife went crazy. She told him, curse your God and die. What a nasty advice. Thank you, Jesse. You're a great wife. <laughs> In all of this, the narrator of the book of Job tells us, Job did not sin with his lips. There's no doubt this guy here is a spectacular guy. His patience is truly admirable. And, and this is highlighted in the New Testament by James. Yet, Job was a sinner, like all of us. He didn't curse God, but he cursed, in chapter 3, his own life. And throughout the book, you may have a glimpse that Job, although he remained faithful to God, he started to think that God was part of the problem. That God was being unfair to him. For instance, chapter 4, his friends in uh, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, they came to visit him. They tried to comfort Job and explain the reason for his pain. And their argument is pretty simple. It goes like this. God is just, and He gives each one what they deserve. Whoever practices evil receives curse. Whoever practices good receives blessings. We call that cause-in-effect logic. Yet, although Job listened very carefully to his friend's advice, he tried to defend himself saying he had committed no sin, so something is wrong out there. From chapter 4 all the way through chapter 30, 
is Job and his friends in this accusation defense sort of dialogue until we reach chapter 31, which we just read. Chapter 31 is a monologue. Is Job talking to himself? Is Job collecting his thoughts and looking at the mirror? And in his thoughts, he asked God for an audience. He asked God to judge his case. Job has, a lots, has lots of questions to ask the Almighty One. In his view, God owes him an explanation. God owes me an explanation. That's Job's argument. And Job try, tries to think that maybe God is too busy up there in heaven. He's not looking at his problems. Or maybe God is too grand, too almighty. He doesn't worry about, doesn't bother himself with our mortals. So anyway, chapter 31 says, Job has his defense signed. No need of lawyers. He will present his curriculum before God, and he believes his righteousness will convince God that he deserved a better treatment from the Almighty One. Job thinks he will leave the heavenly court with a crown on his head. Like a prince, I will approach the heavenly court. And as you see, friends, Job has no idea of what he's talking about. His heart is filled with arrogance. And then, in chapter 38 through, chap through 40, God finally gives Job an audience. Okay, I will hear you, but not in the way you're expecting. And if you, if you open in chapter 38, you'll see God's sense of humor, God's mood is not welcoming. He's speaking from a storm. God is angry at Job. And he asked Job to fasten his seatbelts because the trial will start and he will reverse the audience structure. God will ask questions and Job has to give the answers. His trial will begin. So, chapter 38, here's God saying, Job, answer me if you can. Question number one. Where are you when I drew the blueprint of the universe? What was the deepest dive you ever took? Can you control, can you manage the fury of the oceans? How often were mornings born after one of your commands? How many times have the sun and moon obeyed your voice? Do you know how many drops make up the seas? Have you visited the hidden regions of death? Have you measured the size of the earth with the palm of your hands? Have you ever dropped rain from the skies or snow from the heavens? Do you know who makes the heat and the cold appear? What do you know about the heavens? How many planets have you visited? Have you ever traveled through the Orient? <laughs> through the stars? Do you have any control of what's happening up there? Have you ever given food to the lions? Have you ever fed the crows? Have you ever prepared the prey for them to feed? Chapter 39. 
Do you know the routine of the animals? Do you know when they wake up, when they mate, when they go hunting, when they sleep, when they die? Can you tame wild animals? Can you give an order and they will obey you? Do you know, Job, the ostrich? Such a great animal, isn't it? Do you know that ostriches let horses eat dust when they run? Did you happen to teach them how to run? Do you know who energizes the horses? They are fast like a thunder. Do you know who drew their manes? Did you happen to spread shampoo on their manes? These here, never seen shampoo by women die of envy. Do you have the intelligence of the falcon? What is after one of your classes that eagles learn to nest on high mountains? Chapter 40. After all of those questions, God said to Job, So, my dear Job, now that I have given you these questions, do you have any questions for me? See chapter 4, verses 3 and 5. Job says, I lay my hand on my mouth. I have spoken once, and I will not answer. Twice! In other words, I have spoken too much. But I will proceed no further. That's a different Job, isn't it? He's quiet. So what can we learn from all of this? If God is good and just, why do we suffer? If God is good and just, why do we suffer? Did you bring your notepad? I want you to write down this answer right here. Go. Get something. I want you to write down. This is very important. This will change your lives. If God is good and just, why do we suffer? Answer number one. I do not know. Like that? Children? With me? Tracking with me? I do not know. For God does not owe us any explanation. It's like a punch in the face. God does not owe us any explanation. Look at the book of Job. God didn't give Job any answers. Not a, not a single one. Actually, if you look at the book, God brought more questions to Job. And what is the idea here, friends? The idea is pretty simple. God wants us to trust Him, even if He doesn't give us the answers we seek. God is worthy of our trust, even though He remains silent in the face of our suffering. He is God He knows what He's doing. We are not sovereign. He is. God's ways are far more complex than the cause and effect logic of His friends, of Job's friends. God's ways are mysterious. I brought some stuff here for you. Do you know what this is? Say it. Mona Lisa. So imagine I am Leonardo da Vinci. 
the guy who painted this. And this painted in the Museum Louvre in, the, in France. Imagine a person goes into that museum and rips the painting apart. What's going to happen with her? She'll probably be arrested and will never be able to pay the fine because she just destroyed one of the most expensive paintings in the world, worthy millions of dollars. But what if the one who ruined the painting was me, Leonardo? Who is out there to question me? The answer is nothing. Nothing can happen to me. Nobody can put me in jail because I am the owner of that painting. Similarly, God is the owner of the world. He created us. He made us out of nothing. Although we do not understand why bad things happen in the world, He does not owe us an explanation because He is God and we are not. So this week I was asking lots of questions to the Lord. Why did, did you take Antonio from our family? And I was going through my curriculum, as Job did. When my mom found out she was pregnant of me, she reached out to the man, who happens to be my biological father, and he decided to leave. He decided to abandon me. He had all the chances to stay with me and raise me, but he didn't. He just abandoned my family. And here I am. I love, I love this little one from the get-going. I desired Him from the first day. And here I am pleading for the Lord to let me live with this little boy just a little bit more. And He was taken away. Isn't life very paradoxical? It looks like it's unfair. But friends, why cancer? Why war in Ukraine? Why so much injustice in the world? The list is long and the answer is pretty clear. I don't know. And I cannot charge God because He doesn't owe an explanation. He's the owner. If you look at the Scripture from Genesis chapter 3 onwards, you see lots of questions. Where does the serpent come from? Why didn't God destroy the serpent right away? Why, why sin is all over the place? And God never defended Himself. He never defended Himself. Why? Because He doesn't need to defend Himself. He is the Almighty. It's hard to understand this because we think so much about ourselves. God is not obligated to give an explanation. God wants us to trust in Him even though He doesn't give us the answer we strive for. And I, throughout this moment of mourning and grieving. I have four mental guardrails that saves me from, from going crazy. Now you can write down this for this. I'm talking truly now. So the four mental guardrails. First, doesn't matter what happened. And we're going to make a deal here this morning. Doesn't matter what happened. God is good. You have to train your mind to think like that. Doesn't matter what happened. God is good. So the second part of the guardrail doesn't matter what happened. God is 
just. Third, doesn't matter what happened, God is sovereign. And if you still have any doubts, doubts, doesn't matter what happened, God loves me. He's good, He's just, He's sovereign, He loves me. If you belong, if you have these mental guardrails in your mind, you can survive. You can survive heavy pain. Friends, we don't know the answers for our suffering, but at least we know who God is. If God is just, if God is good, why do we suffer? Number two, suffering is one of God's best methods for maturing our faith. Suffering is one of God's best methods for maturing our faith. Go to chapter 42 of Job. Verse 5. Let's, let's see what we get here. Chapter 42, verse 5. Pretty famous verse. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. What is going on here? The narrator is telling us, Job is telling us, Job was one person before suffering and another person after suffering. Are you tracking with me? Before, he knew about God. He had information about God. He had a good theology about God. After pain, he experienced God through the suffering. The first knowledge that Job had about God was informational, was theological. Now he experienced God right in the middle of his suffering. And friends, we need both if you want to be mature Christians. We need good theology on fire. We need truth and experience of God's goodness. We need both. And this is the great picture of God's pedagogy. Suffering is one of God's ways to take us from theology to experience, from information to piety, from external knowledge of God to an intimate relationship with Him. And one more thing. Job's story teaches us that God doesn't give us the answers on purpose. He is intentional on not giving us the answers. Why? Imagine that Job received from God all the reasons for his suffering. Let's, let's just imagine that. That his story would turn into a best-selling book. The Bible. And his story would be right here. All generations after him would read his story and would know how to handle pain because of him. Imagine that he had this. Oh, Job, you're suffering a lot, but this is the reason why you're suffering, my friend. Hang on. And then Job look at those answers and say, you know what? I better hang on. He lost his kids. He starts to weep, but he then wiped them away. I better hang on. My name, my book will be a bestseller. What is the problem with this argument? It is a justification for facing suffering, but a selfish one. He would do it for himself. He would endure the pain for himself, not for God's sake. And how is it possible to suffer 
for God's sake and not for a selfish justification. There's only one way possible if we know nothing. Because if we know nothing about our suffering, the only thing we have, the only motivation to endure the pain is to trust God's goodness and God's wisdom. And then we suffer for the glory of God. God sometimes prevents us from knowing the reasons for our suffering because He wants us to trust He always has a greater purpose behind our suffering. Let's try to think about that with an illustration. So I brought here popcorn. Here I have corn kernels and the popcorn. Famous Brazilian author says, the biggest changes in life happen when we go through the fire. A person who does not go through the fire remains the same forever. These are people of sameness and hardness. But they don't realize it and think their way of life is the best way to be. But suddenly comes the fire. Fires is when life throws us into a situation we would never imagine. Pain. There is fire from outside. Uh, losing a love, losing a son, losing a father, losing a job, getting poor. It can be fire from within. Panic, anxiety, depression, panic, fear. And there's always a remedy to stop the suffering. Stop the fire. If you stop the fire, the suffering is over. What is the problem, my friends? If you stop the fire, you also stop the possibility of a great transformation. <laughs> Simple as that. Ah, try to imagine this poor popcorn kernel enclosed in an increasingly hot pan. She thinks her time has come. I'm going to die. She cannot believe transformation has been prepared for her. But without warning, through the power of fire, a great change happens. Boom! She appears as something else totally different. Something she never had dreamed of. A soft, beautiful, and tasty popcorn. But yet, you always have the unpopped kernels. Remember that? Who are those? They are people like those who no matter how hot the fire, they simply refuse to change. They refuse to change. I'm not going to change. And as a result, they become bitter, harder, and closing themselves, antisocial. And I ask you, my friends, look at me here. What happens to you when you go through the fire? Do you become a better person? Do you get closer to God? Do you look softer, more beautiful, enjoyable, or harsh, bitter, antisocial, corn kernel-like? Job was one before suffering and another person after suffering. And the challenge remains. Suffering is one of God's best methods for maturing our faith. Are you ready to suffer? If God is good and just, why do we suffer? Number three, 
I don't know why we suffer, but I know God promises that evil and suffering will end one day. The theme of hope runs through the book of Job, chapter 13, chapter 25. But track with me, chapter 42 again. The end of Job's story points us to this reality of paradise. This reality of no suffering. This reality of blessing all over the place. Job ended his story with twice what he had before. He had one wife. How many does he have now? Twice what he had before. How many Job has now? Well, still one. But remember the kind of wife he had before? So the double blessing in marriage, according to Job, is not God giving you a new one. It is God renewing the old one. He had ten children. Now he has twenty. Ten in the heavens. Ten on earth. The animals, the servants, everything. Job ends chapter 42 living in a kind of paradise. In other words, hope is the last word of his story and should be the same with our story but we have to ask something here what are the grounds for this hope for hoping for such a paradise how do we know this isn't an empty promise how do we know this is just fluffy promise from God friends scripture says that we can have this kind of hope because God became man and took our sufferings upon His shoulders. That's where we can rely on. Christ's death marks the end of our relationship with the old man, with the old Adam, Adam with the old creation. And His resurrection marks, inaugurates new creation. Life eternally. We can hope for a better future because Christ has resolved our problems in the present. God solved the problem of suffering by taking our suffering upon Himself. This is much more than a rational, apologetic answer to the problem of suffering. We're talking about, about a God who carried our suffering, our pain, as His own. When Christ cried on the cross, My God, My God, why have you forsaken me? He was not crying as the Son of God. He was crying as the Son of Man. He was, crying, he was giving our cry to God. We were distant. We were out of God's reach. We were rebels. We were heading to hell. He cried in our place. He suffered our sufferings as if they were His own sufferings. That's amazing news, friends. We have a personal Savior. God is not something abstract like an idea, a theological framework. Much more than that, God, God's Son took on flesh. He stepped into the darkness. He bore the heavy cross for our sins. He is God with us. Our suffering, friends, is written still in His cars. That's the kind of God He is. And I just want to close with Great illustration I've heard a couple of years ago. A scientist 
spent his whole, his whole life trying to find the cure for cancer, the cure for several diseases. He was trying to improve human life. He knew he was concerned about the world's problems. And he had a seven-year-old guy, a little boy, living in his house, but the guy was always missing his father. And then one day, he broke into his workplace. He invaded his lab. And the scientist was very nervous about the interruption and tried to make his son play elsewhere. Seeing that it would be impossible to manage the little guy, he tried to find something else to distract him. So he went through, he came across a magazine, and then he found a map of the world, all the continents together. And then he, he cut off the map from the magazine, cut the figure in several pieces, give them tape, and ask him, hey, my son, do you want to play the puzzle? I have you the world to fix. Here it is, all broken. Try to fix it. Doing the math, the scientist knew that the seven-year-old boy was never going to fix the world because he never seen the world before. But after one hour, the little man knocked on the head or on the, the legs of his father and said, done. And then he didn't believe. He didn't give credit to his words. But then he showed him the map, complete. And then he was like, you didn't know what the world was like. How did you do it? And then the boy replied, Dad, I didn't know how the world was like. But when you took the map from the magazine, I look at the other side of the magazine. It was a figure of a man. It was the face of a man. So what I did, I tried to fix the map, but I couldn't. So I just flipped the pieces. And I ran and tried to fix the face of the man that I knew how it was like. And then I realized that when I fixed the man, I turned the paper over and saw that I have fixed the world. And I ask you this, doesn't this story remind you of another man? Another man who began to change human beings one by one, discipleship one-on-one, -on -one, and slowly is restoring creation. When Christ starts to renew the face of a man, of a woman, His building, little by little, the restoration of all the earth, the all creation. The reason why we so often complain about the world being so ugly, so unjust, is because we see so, just a few pieces of the puzzle. God has the mosaic prepared already, full and complete. For us, many parts just don't make any sense. They seem strange. It's not a happy ending for my family. We just started to work here, and all of a sudden our son passed away. It was such a beautiful story. We just have the fragment of this mosaic, but God is seeing it completely. So I lay my hand on my mouth. And one day, friends, we will see the puzzle completed and say, Oh God, you're good. You're just, you're sovereign, you're wise, you're truly wise. You knew exactly what you're doing. God is not watching the world being destroyed by suffering, evil, and injustice. God is fixing this world, friends. 
And He has already begun to fix it because He in Christ has already begun to fix us. Let's pray. Dear Father, may Your Spirit comfort those who are now weeping. May Your Spirit comfort those who are now suffering and those who are now hopeless. Those who are watching online, those who are here in this congregation. We know that the Lord Jesus wept in our place. He suffered in our place. He died the death we deserved. And because He endured such pain, He now gives us real hope. Because of Christ, O Father, hope is now the last word of our story. Oh Lord, You know all our needs. You know how weak we are. And I ask You humbly, fill us with Your Holy Spirit. Fill us with comfort. Fill us with hope. And deliver us from complaining in Your presence. Teach us how to engage in our sufferings in a faithful way. Not for our own sake, not for our own biography, not for our own best-selling books, but for Your sake. And in Your Son's name we pray. Amen.